Amen. Thank you, Chris and Justin and all the crew upstairs and down here with Matthew and Ashton. It's so good to be in this place on whichever floor you're on with God's people worshiping in God's spirit. Now, maybe there's been times over the last week that you really haven't felt that way. That's okay. That's okay. This is the place that God wants for you to be. The local church is God's hope for your life. The local church is God's plan for your life. I don't care who else you are. The local church is God's plan for your life. And so I want to very briefly welcome you to church and I hope and trust and expect and have been praying that you were led to worship elbow to elbow with other people, commonly confessing the glories of our God. You need to hear that from somebody else next to you that goes, you know what, I'm not crazy. Well, I am, but not for that reason. I agree with this person, and we are all on the same footing at the foot of the cross. So I want to talk just very briefly in conclusion through our August series about the church, about Bethel in particular. My name's Eric, and I get to pastor down here. And for all four Sundays in August thus far, we've been talking about sort of our church organization, our vision, mission, and direction. Now, some of you have said, oh my goodness, I've heard this so many times, I could, I could tell you this in my sleep. Well, we're going to test that theory. We have instructed Matt McGill, our worship pastor. You might notice that Matt was not leading worship. It's because he's gearing up for a project. He's got two bottles of Prosecco, and he's going to go around to your house sometime about 2 in the morning, and he's going to knock, and he's going to say, what's Bethel's strategy? And if you can't answer him correctly, he's just going to hammer the Prosecco all by himself. (laughs) No, not really. Not really. We want you to hear this. We want you to know this. Repetition is the mother of learning, and so we keep saying these things very succinctly, very efficiently, but we want you to know what we as a church are all about. First and foremost, the church, what it actually is, the essence or the nature of the church. It's not this. It's not that. It's not about that it does all these different things. The church is the new covenant community of the Spirit. It is that age. It is that space. It is those people in whom, through whom, by whom the new covenant blessings are mediated in the world. Now, ultimately, the new covenant was not supposed to be for we Gentiles, but surprise, surprise, we as the church, we get to be the distributors and the dispensers of the new covenant. We didn't see that coming. The Spirit of God literally indwells every person at new birth, at regeneration, and those people become united in a community that is the mediation of the new covenant. That's what the church is. And what is the church precisely trying to accomplish? That's our mission, is to make disciples of Jesus Christ, to make mini-me's of Jesus, leading people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what we're after. We're not trying to gain all sorts of community influence just so that we can have influence. None of that stuff. We're just trying to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. It's really pretty ruthlessly focused. And then we have a series of ministries. What are our ministries? They simply are the avenues through which we accomplish our mission. That's all ministries are. It literally just means diakonos, through the dust. It's the avenues of service in how we accomplish our mission to make disciples of Jesus Christ because the church is the new covenant community of the Spirit. And then there's the gifts What are the gifts? The gifts are simply the way that you and I actually accomplish the ministries, which accomplish the mission because of what the church is. And so people get all wrapped around the axle. What about this gift? What about that gift? I don't know. Is it helping us accomplish our ministries that help us accomplish our mission? Those seem to be the gifts that persist in the church. Now, that's what we believe the church, how it's organized. We at Bethel 
have a unique, distinct vision for who we are, for what we do. And when we say vision, we mean it's the things that we're doing no matter what we're doing. What we do no matter what we do. And we have that broken into three categories, growing communities. We want people to one another. We want to one another all over the place. Engage in large groups, in worship context, in small gatherings. Be effective and influential in the community. We want to grow communities. Second, we want to build leaders. Raise up people who will be intensely focused and passionate about raising up other leaders who will raise up leaders because that's discipleship. And then finally, living generously. Being those people in our context here in East Texas who are characterized by giving their lives away. There's a whole lot of other things we could be known for, doctrinal this, carpet squares, that, whatever. We want to be known as those people who grow communities, build leaders, and live generously because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, very practically and tactically, how do we do that? What is our strategy to actually execute all of that theory and practice? We have three basic categories of strategy. Number one is expository preaching and teaching. We want to teach the Word of God in the context There is no meaning apart from context. And so we believe that when we stand and say this is what this text says and here's what it means and here's why it matters, that expository teaching, that's when lives are changed. That's when we can say with confidence, thus says the Lord. And everything hinges and hangs off of that first category. We want to be about expository teaching and preaching. Second, we've employed strategically a multi-site model. We're not trying to gather everybody into one centralized, monolithic marketplace of ministries. No, we've sort of decentralized and distributed so that discipleship can take place in different parts of our community in East Texas so that there can be indigenous expressions and enjoyments of the gospel in various communities. So at this point, we have five campuses scattered across East Texas. And then our intentional missions strategy. Come and see, go and tell. Acts 1.8, here, there, and everywhere. And we're very focused on our mission strategies. We are very concerned with unreached people groups, those places where the gospel is not flourishing, where there is not a healthy church standalone. With um, planting churches, we are very, very fortunate that we get to partner with churches in Italy, uh, both in central and northern Italy and in Spain, where we just, this campus is involved in planting those churches so that the gospel is given and the word of God sounds forth. Also, international students is a huge ministry for us at Bethel, where we have a lot of international students coming to Tyler who will study for however many years, and before they are sent back to their home countries, we want them to have access to the gospel. And then fourth, local generosity, things that we support like For the Silent or Bethesda Clinic or Loving Alternatives, those kinds of things, where here in our midst, we can make a very large difference. That's what we're about. And it matters massively. And let me just say, my wife and I were talking this morning on the way into church in the car. We love to go to church. I know that church can sometimes be a, soul, a, a seething cauldron of, of hurt and heartache and heartburn. But the local church is where it's at. Now, we got problems. We can always have improvements. But I believe that this is fundamentally the most important thing that is happening in our world today. Full stop. So to that end, I'm going to pray for us one more time, and then I'm going to start us off looking in the gospel of Luke chapter 5. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity now to open up your word, to continue looking at the early earthly life and ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Father, I pray that you would remove any distraction, any hindrance, any sin that so easily entangles, that we would hear from you, that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. 
So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would illumine your word. You would give me wisdom and utterance that you would be honored by that which is conveyed. We pray all these things, Father, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. We have been this month in August in a study in the Gospel of Luke, the early earthly ministry of Jesus. We started in Luke chapter 4, and Luke's overarching theme and thesis of his gospel is that Jesus is the man. Yes, he's God, but he is the man. He is the ideal. He is the last Adam. And we continue to walk through chapters 4, and we've gotten into chapter 5. We said that Jesus is the man, but we also learned some other things about Jesus, that Jesus gets it done. As he's kicked out of his synagogue in Nazareth, they try to throw him off a mountain. Jesus says, nope, not yet, not my time. Jesus is the man. Jesus gets it done. That Jesus conquers every form of evil. As he faces down a demon-possessed man in the synagogue in Capernaum, Jesus conquers every form of evil. Last week, We continued in Luke chapter 5, and we saw that Jesus redeems. As he calls his disciples and heals an unclean leper, Jesus' ministry is about redemption, buying back that which was lost, which is going to prepare us for now the middle of chapter 5, and our big idea goes like this. Jesus thinks we're worth it. Not just Jesus loves you, although that's true, and it's a wonderful song. Somebody should write that one down. But Jesus actually thinks you and I and we are worth it. Let me explain kind of what's going on here in the middle of Luke chapter 5. I want you to imagine, just imagine, that somehow, for some reason, our government has published, every single person in the country has published your full medical records, all of them. And it's just all out there on the worldwide interwebs for everyone to see. And there it is. There's your bad cholesterol. There's your good cholesterol. Here's your triglycerides. Uh, you said you were low carb. Apparently not. Or all the different things. And, and the, the call goes out. Everyone's, everyone's not doing great. We've got a finite amount of time. The clock is ticking. We've got to do something. And so what starts to happen is we have people gather on Broadway. And they begin to organize. And they begin to have protests. And they begin to band together and sort of clump together, not ironically, like cholesterol. They come together and they begin to sort of like protest for their purpose and for their cause. And it's all about beans and leafy greens and lean proteins and you got to eat this way. And they all kind of band together and they wear hemp and they eat avocado toast and they're really furious and they're doing all this. You got to eat this way. You got to, everyone's got to eat this way. And then they kind of certainly get, they get joined up and then there's all the camp gladiator and the CrossFit people and they're wearing spandex and cellophane and they're like, okay, great. And they're like, it's all about exercise. It's all. And then no, you got all the, all the people who are really into like the Eastern thing. No, it's all about yoga and they walk very slow. This is how we're going to fix the problem. All these things. And there's all these different people who are like, no, no, no. It's all about meditation. But they're all kind of gathering together, and they realize, hey, there's a problem, and if we just all come together, we can fix this. But then walking north up Broadway is just one dude. It's just one dude. And he's got a QR code on his chest, and he goes, all that other stuff? Man, okay, if you'll just take this, done. That's Luke chapter 5. All wanting the same thing, but going about it in completely different ways. Luke chapter 5, we're going to begin reading in verse 17. On one of those days, remember, he's up on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. He's just called his disciples, brought in a huge catch of fish. He's healed a leper. He touched the leper, made the leper clean. Word is now beginning to spread rapidly. How rapidly? Watch this. 
On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. The power of the Lord was with him to heal. Luke is the only gospel writer that will use that expression. The power of the Lord was with him to heal. Word of Jesus has gotten out there. These Pharisees, Luke calls them. This is the first time we're introduced to the Pharisees. They're the protectors. They're literally called the set-apart ones. And they're not an official group. Oh, the Sanhedrin is the ruling senate of Israel, you might say. But the Pharisees, it's not an official group. They're just an influence group. And their job is to protect, protect, protect. Mitigate risk, mitigate risk, mitigate risk. They had seen that the Greek culture, Hellenization, was beginning to come in and corrupt Israel. And they said, no, not on our watch. And so they're dispatched from all over Israel, from Judea, that's way down in the south, from all the villages of the Galilee, that's a lot of different towns, even from the capital, from Jerusalem. All these religious people gather around and they crush into him. It's almost like you get the sense that all these religious people are so closely clustered together that the people who actually are looking for Jesus can't get to him. Sometimes that can happen where there's all these investigators and explorers, but the people who are actually desperate for a gasp of Jesus can't get there. We know that Jesus is in a home in Capernaum. This might have been his own home since he moved his headquarters from Nazareth to Capernaum. It might be Simon's house, Peter's house, Peter's mother-in-law's house. We're not exactly sure. But these Pharisees are now beginning to go, hey, what's going on? We've been clamoring about the value of kale and avocado toast, and this guy's saying a whole different strategy. Now, let me put a very fine point on what's going on. These Pharisees, again, not an official group. It's not that they were all even priests. Some of them were not. They're scribes, lawyers, and Pharisees. They probably came from the descendant of Ezra, way back during the Old Testament, before 400 years of silence. So the children of Israel come out of exile from Babylon. Nehemiah and Ezra call the people together. They teach and they say, separate, separate, come out and be holy. And so some of these people, these Pharisees, comes from a Hebrew word, mean, Hebrew word meaning to separate and to be apart. They started teaching, we must separate, we must be distinct and different. We have to be apart from them. We have to Fight against all the Greek culture that's coming in. And if we can get everybody to obey Torah, then God will see and he will come back and he will reestablish the kingdom of God on earth. And just to make sure, we're going to add in all these other strictures. You can't stir your soup clockwise. You can't do this without only that many pinches of spice. We're going to add in all this extra stuff just to make sure God sees how good we can be. And when everybody follows Torah, then God will see and he will come back and he will establish the kingdom on earth with Israel right at the center. And that's what they were driving for. But make no mistake, the Pharisees were desperate for and fighting toward the very coming of the kingdom of God. But they were going about it in a very different kind of way. So they want to know, why is this Jesus not exhorting the value of kale? I mean, it's kashi. You should have kashi too. No, I'm not, I'm not a hamster. No, thanks. Verse 18, and behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. I love this. There are some guys who have no other options. We're out of efforts here. We can't fashion a splint. We can't pump you full of deer antler. There's nothing else we can do. We've probably tried a lot of things. 
We've even been on the interwebs, and it can't help. Believe it or not, we went to WebMD. It said you're not paralyzed, but clearly you are. And so they're like, all we, our only hope is to get this guy to Jesus. And they get to Capernaum. They hear where Jesus is, but they can't even get in to see him. See, people in those days, they're not like East Texans. They lived in what's called insula. These little tiny communities where houses were quite literally stacked room on room on room. And so you shared a wall with your uncle, your aunt, your grandmother, your neighbor, their uncle, their aunt, their brother. And you're just right in there. Everybody knows everybody's business. There are no secrets. You relied on everyone for everything. This guy's paralyzed. And you get the impression from the other gospel accounts that he's been paralyzed his entire life. He has no hope. He has no help. But these guys say, if I can just get him to Jesus, if we can just get him to Jesus, watch what happens. It's probably a familiar story to you. Luke really wants us to get our attention. And behold there, verse 18, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles, in the midst before Jesus. You ever think about how the homeowner feels about this? <laughs> like, um, hey, that's my roof! They just start clawing a hole in, and they start to lower this dude. At this point, you know he's got to be going, actually, 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 wait. Uh, I'm thinking, I got better. No, 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 wait, all the way down. <laughs> and they lower him through a roof. He probably wasn't in for that part of the plane, but they were committed. They were all the way in at this point. They went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, you interrupted me. What in the world? I'm very busy and important. No, actually, he was right on time, do you see? That's how Jesus works. See, Jesus thinks we're worth it. He said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Now, that was the record scratch. That was a humongous deal. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Blasphemies, incidentally, are worthy of stoning. Who is this that is now speaking? They weren't all upset to begin with. They were just thinking he's proposing a different pathway to the kingdom than we've been saying. But now he's speaking blasphemies. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they're right. So now we have the conflict. We've seen Jesus do amazing things. He's healed people. He's touched a leper. He's brought in all these fish. He's taught with compassion and sincerity and is as if he actually cares. And there's all these people now that are pressing and pressing and pressing around. By the way, if you're a Pharisee, you're like, uh, nobody's ever pressed in to see me. Right. And so there's a little bit of jealousy and envy with this Jesus guy. Verse 22, when Jesus perceived their thoughts... Uh, see, Jesus actually does not just perceive our thoughts, but even our motivations. So we might as well be honest. He already knows better than we do. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Don't you love that? They weren't saying it out loud. It's the same thing that happens in the Old Testament, by the way. This is very particular language that Luke is using. When the children of Israel were grumbling silently in their tents, and God says to them, why are you grumbling in your hearts? And then he destroys them. <laughs> Jesus doesn't do that here. Why are you grumbling in your hearts? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? Which is easier? Well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because 
Who knows? I mean, you can't see anything. You can say, anybody could say it. You probably shouldn't because only God can forgive sins. Yeah, but which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? But so that you will know, he says, so that you may know that the Son of Man, boom, there it is. Now, you may have been in church a long time, maybe not. You may have heard that expression, Son of Man. You may understand that it is one of the titles of Jesus, but it is one of the most important titles for Jesus. In fact, it is Jesus' favorite title for Jesus. And Luke loves it. Luke will say it 23 times in his gospel alone. 23, the Son of Man, the Son of Man. It comes from Daniel chapter 7. It's all over the book of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel, Ezekiel says it 82 times that when the Son of Man comes, he shall such and thus. Daniel 7 talks about the Son of Man who is presented before the Ancient of Days and the kingdoms of the world are handed to this Son of Man. And Jesus is going, <laughs> hey, y'all, that's me. And they can't believe it. It's not what they want. It's not what they're prepared for. It's not what they expect. But here in a now sunroof-having-house in Capernaum, Jesus very directly, very boldly says, you're right. Only God can forgive sins. The Son of Man has that kind of power and that authority because I have grabbed the borders and the boundary of the kingdom and I have dragged it back into your midst. You thought you were going to bring it in by working, 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 working. No, I've grabbed it. I've brought it in. It's begun. They said, but we really, really like kale. He says, it's not about the kale. It's not about the things that you deprive yourselves of. That's joylessness. I'm not here for that. Watch what happens. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, now this is a big risk. Because if you say to a dude, get up and walk, who's been paralyzed his whole life, and he just lays there like a flounder, awkward. Like I, I would get up, but I still have like atrophied, paralyzed legs that don't have any muscle and I don't smell particularly awesome because I can't, you know, bathe. And uh, this is a big chance. But Jesus knows it's actually harder to forgive sin. This guy had a problem. It was his legs. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention last fall I heard my friend Ross Strader, who is our senior pastor, use this passage to do a funeral for a friend of ours who had passed away. And he kept on saying, but it was his legs. It was his legs. But God did a better broader, gooder, greater thing, so that you will know the power of the Son of Man. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Now, you and I have been in church long enough. We go, yeah, so the dude probably just popped up and did. Yeah, but that's massive. Nothing that the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law and the, and the lawyers, nothing that they were saying would have ever, ever, ever helped this man. In fact, they didn't care. They were happy to usher in the kingdom on their terms, and this guy would just be forgotten, and he'd be a part of the grist mill of history, but not Jesus. See, Jesus thinks we're worth it. Verse 25, and immediately Dr. Luke sees that this guy who's got zero muscle tone, he's got sticky bird legs. He gets up, and you don't hear like the weird Disney music of and a harp flourish where his legs begin to grow and... He just get, he's restored. Bam. He's just instantly fully restored because that's what Jesus does. He gets up. He takes his bed. 
And he leaves, though presumably out the front door this time. I mean, I guess he could have huffed it up, but probably not. He goes right out the front door where all these shocked people are amazed. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been what he'd been lying on, and went home, glorifying God. If a guy says to a paralyzed man, get up and walk, right after he has said your sins are forgiven, does it leave much doubt that this person also forgave the man's sins? You get the indication that this particular person's malady was in fact caused by sin. We don't know that exactly, but Jesus seemed to know that. Sometimes it's because of sin, sometimes it's not. In this particular case, it apparently was connected to sin, and Jesus forgives the sin. He goes, oh, y'all aren't so sure that that just happened? Get up, and off goes the dude, glorifying God. Interesting, he's glorifying God, the text says. Verse 26, and amazement, paradoxisms. Oh, the, the new Eric translation for that is, they could not explain and understand and believe what they had just seen. Amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. In other words, you guys keep telling us, you Pharisees and scribes, oh, you're all here, how good. You all keep telling us that if we work hard enough, that if we just obey, if we just try harder and do gooder and be better, that the kingdom of God will come. Well, this dude just brought it for free. I think we'll go with him. You, no, I don't, you mean I don't have to beat myself and fast and be miserable and tear my clothes? And do, no, I can actually party down? Yeah, I'm with him. See, that's the kind of kingdom that Jesus has brought. That's why his earthly ministry early was so foundational. Well, just to give the, the couplet here, because Luke loves to give little two-dose bits. Watch what happens right after this. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. Now, we know from Matthew 9, 9 that this was actually Matthew. Probably Jesus changes his name. His Hebrew name was probably Levi, meaning he was from the tribe of Levi. He was from the tribe of the priestly class. But Jesus <laughs> changes his name to Matthew, gift of God. Isn't that good? His name was Levi. A he was a tax collector sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. Now, I know we know a little bit about tax collectors, but let me just make sure we're clear. He's not just an IRS agent. When Rome conquered any people, they would, they, would, they would nail to a post, we're holding an auction to the highest bidder. You can be the revenue collector for us. And you would go and you would bid, 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 bid. And if you won, you got to be the money collector, the tax collector. And so every person in the conquered realm, in this case Israel, had to pay a certain amount. But you, if you're the tax collector, you can charge whatever you like. So Rome demands of you 10 cents. You charge 25. You give Rome the 10 that they require, but you keep 15 for yourself. And on and on it goes. And so he's deemed ceremonially unclean because he's with Gentiles. He eats with Gentiles and he's bilking them and he is a traitor, traitor, traitor to them. Jesus renames him gift of God. Well, that's pretty good. This man is hated. He's absolutely hated and despised. We don't get a whole lot of narrative here. Jesus just walks up to him and goes, follow me. And he leaves it all. The question is going to be, which is harder for a paralyzed guy to get up and walk and leave it all or a tax collector to get up and walk away and leave it all? Same to Jesus. Equally impossible to them. Same level of effort and affection and attention from Jesus because Jesus thinks we're worth it. And just like we see the disciples previously, just 
Jesus is following me, and they, they drop their nets, their boats, and they just hook them. That's a Hebrew expression for they just left. They just, he just follows Jesus, just like the paralyzed guy gets up and he goes. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. It's the exact same language as the paralyzed guy. Verse 29, and Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and other reclining at table with them. See, even tax collectors need community. They'd been forced to band together. This little band of bilkers and betrayers had come together. And Jesus is right down in the grit and the gunk. Now, they had some good wine, y'all, because they were tax collectors and they were rich. But the Pharisees couldn't believe, like, you don't eat and drink with these people. That means you're, you are establishing, you are declaring camaraderie. You are saying we have fellowship when you shared a meal with someone. Jesus says, yep. Oh, you, you, you think they're beneath me? Oh, that's because you think they're beneath you. And right there is the difference in the two systems. Right there is the difference in the two systems. How could you call Matthew? He's less than. Ah, that's because you still think you have some righteousness of your own. And Jesus is ever, ever taking those opportunities to teach them. After this, Levi had a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and other reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled. Here's my favorite New Testament word. They gungus mossed. It's onomatopoeia. It sounds like what it is. Like gongus mas, gongus mas, gongus mas. Because that's what we religious people do. Just saying. They grumbled at his disciples. Not at Jesus. <laughs> They're not that dumb. They go at Jesus' disciples. Now, this is kind of fascinating. I wish you could watch this. They grumble at his disciples. They would ordinarily have had nothing to do with Jesus' disciples. These uneducated, unlearned fishermen from Galilee that smelled not so great. But they go to the disciples, maybe trying to cause some dissension, maybe trying to cause some confusion, some divide and conquer. And they go, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And by the way, I know you've seen The Chosen too. I don't think Matthew was on the spectrum. Can we just get that out of the way? For those of you who have not watched it, never mind. He's hosting a party with other tax collectors and the old school way of guys are saying, why do you eat with all those people? And Jesus answered them. They didn't ask him. They asked his disciples, but Jesus leans back and goes, hey, 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 I know what you're doing. Jesus answered them, those who, have, who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is not Jesus saying that there are people who don't need salvation. That little phrase has been taken out of context, misunderstood, and therefore misapplied for centuries. No, he's saying those who still believe themselves righteous... I really can't help. Those who are bereft, who are bankrupt, who recognize they have no capacity to stand before a holy God on their own. Oh, I love those people. I love them. It's not about all the other ways of bringing the kingdom. I've grabbed it. I've brought it. And I will pin it to the present with my own death, burial, and resurrection. So what do we take away from a passage like this, this narrative story of the early and earthly ministry of Jesus. Let me just give you four quick implications to land this plane. And it's helpful for us to think these ways about Jesus. Number one goes like this. Jesus declares things righteous that aren't. Now, that's very good news. You and I need to hear that. Jesus declares things righteous that aren't. 
the Pharisees rightly referred to Torah as a picture of the righteousness of God, and it absolutely is. But they took it and they abused it and they made it a joyless burden on the people of God. They took it and they made it a religion just like every other religion where you have to do and accomplish and achieve so that you can earn and accomplish and achieve. That's every human religion in the world ever. And then there's the gospel. God has done Jesus arrives and he completely upends their system of effort and obedience. But please understand, I'm not saying he upended the Torah or the prophets, not at all. In fact, he utterly, completely fulfills them. Rather than doing all the right things so that God would have to bless you, Jesus upends the whole thing and demonstrates that he loves sinners and as God can simply declare them righteous even when they aren't. That's very good news. That's the gospel. They should write that down. Yes, this is our definition of justification, being found guilty but declared righteous. Please understand, you're not! But God has decided to change his mind about you. And he declares you such. And so how God feels about you is actually more powerful and more pertinent than what you feel about you. The thought, the opinion of God matters more. That paralyzed guy had a problem, and it was a big problem. But Jesus knew that he had an even bigger problem. What he needed most was forgiveness of sin. Just like leprosy is the picture of what sin does to us, it makes us a walking around zombie apocalypse, sin also shuts us down. It makes us unable to function properly. This guy needed forgiveness, and so do all of us. Forgiveness meaning someone willing to pay our debt. What he needed was forgiveness of sin, and Jesus freely provided through a different means than what Moses prescribed. Then, to demonstrate his power and the man's worth, he healed his legs too. It turns out that crazy, weird book back in the Old Testament, Leviticus, is on full display and dead-on accurate. What the Lord calls clean and holy, no one may call unholy. And that's what God does with people. This high priest just called the unclean clean, and it is finished. Number two, righteousness is the currency of the kingdom. Righteousness is the currency of the kingdom. It is what makes the kingdom function and flourish. The trouble is when any of us begin to think we have any on our own, not a quarter cent, not a piece of belly button lint of righteousness do any of us have. We are bereft and bankrupt. But the crazy thing is, when Jesus drags the kingdom in, he says, look here, scan this QR code, but not really. Trust, believe, understand, scan this. And I will fill you with the coffers of the kingdom of heaven's righteousness. Filled. This is why when you get to the end of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says in one of my favorite expressions, oh, it's like a basket of grain that you fill up to overflowing and you shake it and you press down and you pour more on top. That's what I'm going to do with you. Now, do you think of your life as a vessel of righteousness like that? Because Luke wants you to. Because Jesus wants you to. Because I want us to think of we have been given the fullness of the righteousness of the kingdom of God for free. You and I cannot get it on our own, but we can be filled by grace by Jesus. Number three, there is nobody beyond the grasp of grace. My sense, as I've been praying about this morning, 
is that all of us will agree with that until a face flashes before our mind. Someone that we love, someone that we care about, and we think, yeah, but not that person. It would take a miracle for them to step out of death and into life. And you're right. Oh, but not a miracle of a healing of a paralyzed person or even the cleansing of a leper. It would take the Spirit of God taking that which is dead and separate and making it alive and connected. And you know what the paralyzed man had? People! People who would bring him to Jesus. I'm not saying you need to blow up an air mattress and strap somebody to it and drag them to church because that's actually illegal. I'm saying much more powerfully, like the paralyzed man's friends, you bring them to Jesus, you pray for them. My God, my God, would you do for them what you have done for me? Persistently, without ceasing, until finally you hear an audible voice from heaven that says, enough already! And then you keep going. That's how we bring people to Jesus. Not giving them tracts, not having them watch this particular program. We pray for them. We're with them relationally, compassionately. It does take a miracle. It's the kingdom of God breaking forth in their midst. You pray and you pray and you pray. That's why Jesus says, your faith, I see your faith. You believe that I am who I said I was and you asked me to. That's how Jesus works. Is that a guarantee? By no means. Will it happen overnight? Probably not. Is it worth it? <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes. Jesus thinks we're worth it. We get to think that others are also worth it. Or there may be a face of someone in your mind you hope never receives grace and only get what they deserve because they're horrible and they hurt you and they wronged you. And there's grace for that too carry that person to Jesus too. And perhaps there will be a miracle. And if you still clench white-fisted into a refusal, I cannot, I will never do that. There's grace for that too. But may this passage soften all of our hearts and open all of our fists. See, Jesus thinks we're worth it. These paralyzed friends thought that he was worth it. They were willing to go into the midst of the mess for the sake of their friends. Jesus thinks that we're worth it. Even guys like Matthew that had betrayed his people and brought all sorts of shame on himself. And so let me just exhort you, the church, fourth point, prepare your ministry of interruption. I mean, Jesus the Christ, the God-man, the second member of the Godhead Trinity is right in the middle of a sermon and the roof opens up. Now that would be irksome, candidly. I'm, I'm a very busy and important person. I don't like to be interrupted. If I wanted to be interrupted, I would study at Long John Silver's. Ew, ew, ew. But I don't like to be interrupted. Jesus doesn't seem to mind. In fact, he's always prepared accordingly. The Lord was interrupted, and he didn't rebuke anyone for doing so. See, the Lord's ministry was availability so that he could be interrupted. Also, by the way, prepared in advance, because Luke's told us now three times, he would go to the desolate places and pray. He would go to the desolate places and pray, and so that when he was near people, they could always interrupt him. Now, that's instructive for us. The kingdom's breaking through, and we get to be the ambassadors who look at others as though they, they are worth our being interrupted. When the knock comes on the door, and it will, 
when the call or the text comes, well, if a call comes, you know that's nobody under 30, but that's another story. When those things break in, utter a quick prayer for wisdom and that you would be able to walk and talk by the Spirit. And God will do what God will do. And you get to be a part of it. See, Jesus thinks that we're worth it. And he's a good bridegroom. And we're the bride. And what this world needs is for people to know that they're worth it as well. So may the gospel break forth here and from here as well. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you this morning for who you are, for what you've done to redeem us to yourself and to one another. And I pray, God, that the gospel will continue to sound forth, that this little narrative in the gospel of Luke will get our attention, seize our affection, and then we will think of all those people that we think are beyond the grasp of grace. They are not. And so would you, Holy Spirit, lead us, convict us to pray for them persistently, that we would see salvation come to this house. We would see those who are separate and apart from you step into relationship and life with you. I pray for boldness and courage and wisdom in the way we interact with folks that are in our spheres of influence who are lost. Perhaps that's you this morning. You're here, and you've heard more about this Jesus. You just want to know more. How do you get credited full of his righteousness and abandon all of your failed attempts at righteousness? We want to talk with you about that. So catch one of us after the service. Speak with one of our elders or deacons or ministry leaders or pastors. For the rest of us, God, Would you remind us that the kingdom has come and that since you think people matter, we must as well. We pray all these things, Father, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.